part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Hey everyone, this is Don Mike Mendoza, your host for Producing While Asian. This week, our conversation is with Tara Trinity Villanueva. She has been an amazing friend to me, and she's not only here this week to talk about her journey as a performer, but also her experiences in arts management and what she's doing to better herself and her business, as well as her journey as a mother and a woman of color who identifies as Hawaiian, Puerto Rican, and Filipino. So she's got an amazing story, and I'm excited to share it with you guys today. So enjoy Producing While Asian. Hey, Tara Trinity, welcome to Unapologetically Asian. It's so good to have you here today. How are things in D.C.? It's nice. I mean, yeah. weather-wise, it's, it's, it's kind of warm, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not dealing with cicadas. I know that that's like Oof. the big thing right now with everybody, but I think due to like gentrification and all of the buildings that have been popping up over the last like oh, couple of decades... Yeah. I believe they uprooted most of the cicadas in my area. So oh, I don't know. They're like, sense. this is great, but also terrible. Yeah, <laughs> even the cicadas got gentrified. Right. <laughs> oh no, those poor bugs. So, I mean, hey, it's the reality of it, right? Washington, D.C. Get it together, Mayor Bowser. So anyway, so you're here. I'm so excited to have you. You're here in our first season of PWA. And so I'm here to talk with people who have all different AAPI backgrounds about their experiences in the arts, in entertainment, in arts education, in and whether they're a producer or not. It's just here to tell your stories and get your name out there so we can kind of find that equity we're all looking for. So um, I'm just going to turn it over to you and just tell us about you, your kind of history in the arts and your a bit of your journey and how you ended up where you are today. I know it's a big question. So thanks for having me on here. I'm really, really excited. I woke up today and I was just, I was thinking about this, it was on my mind and just also seeing how your journey has developed and, and expanded and enveloped and embraced. I can talk a little bit about like just parts of my life. I think that might be helpful. I have a very non-traditional path. I think a lot of times when people meet me, depending on what situation they meet me in, that's sort of what box they put me in. And until someone gets to know me for a long period of time, that's when I believe they're more able to have a better idea of all the things captured within my life. So I started my very first job. I was eight. And I worked at Trump Taj Mahal <laughs> on the weekends. <laughs> you know, we all have that job. It's fine. <laughs> right? So I, 
I worked at Trump Taj Mahal as a performer. I was a Polynesian dancer. And so I did Tahitian dancing and I did Hawaiian hula. And I was part of like this kind of like Samoan family band entertainment thing. And at like the end, it was the fire spinner and the fire knife spinner who would come out. And that was Uncle Phil to me. And so Uncle Phil, I would go up to every Saturday and I would say, okay, Uncle Phil, do I get money? <laughs> so he would like take his wallet out and, you know, hand me like a $50 bill or a hundred dollar bill. Like, and that was my first job. So I knew at a pretty young age that I could do something I love to do or something that I should say something that was fun. Like for an eight-year-old, I was like, this is fun. Like I'm going to the casinos on the weekend and, you know, all of these adults are here and they're clapping and cheering. And, you know, it was, it was cool. And so then by the time I was 13, then I went on Broadway and it was like, yeah. I did not have that dream. That's a lot of people's dream. That was not my dream. <laughs> but by age 13, I had a full-fledged salary. Like I had to do my taxes at the end of those years. I think it was like two or three years that I had to do taxes on it. And, you know, I was able to go on Fifth Avenue and go shopping. I lived away from my family. I was, before Lin-Manuel was, was a person who was in all of these things, I was in like the first super Latino Broadway show called The Cape Man. Paul Simon put it together. It was a really dope production. And I, you know, I was working next to stars who had not, completely crossed over yet, like Mark Anthony. <clears throat> he was very well known in Latinx community, but not really all communities, I guess. And then, you know, I then moved back down to South Jersey at that point. And I was in a very, very white area. And in high school, I never got really cast <laughs> in her role. <laughs> so you would think like, okay, I did Broadway and now I'm going to my high school productions and I can't even get a speaking part. Like I thought something was wrong with me. Like maybe I didn't, you know, have the, the talent and I started, my self-confidence really started to be questioned and I was really trying to assimilate and fit in. And I know a lot of People who are probably listening to this are like, yup, yup, yup. Because especially if you're like the token, you know, Asian or the token brown person, um, you know, you just, you didn't get those parts. And it was, this was the late nineties, early two thousands. And so then by the time I went off to undergrad, I majored in classical piano performance. What to do with a degree like that? <laughs> but once again, I'm still in the mentality of like, I'm having fun. <laughs> I'll be fine. I just need a piece of paper. The so you know, I went, optimism. <laughs> right. Oh my God. Tell me about it. So I, I'm I'm planted in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm in the middle of the Midwest. I'm in the Bible Belt. And I, you know, I kind of had given up on theater at that point because I hadn't gotten cast all throughout high school. And then I was like, oh, it's just gonna be the same all over again in college if I try for things. But so then I joined like, you know, show choir and acapella and I did a soul review kind of band and I really started finding my voice because I was always kind of a pianist growing up. I had competed in classical piano, but Broadway sort of opened up. How funny is that? Broadway was the thing that like got me to start singing. And then by the end of college, I was being reached out to for roles. So I played like the acid queen 
Who's mm-hmm. Tommy? And then I did, yeah. um, what do you call it? Judas. I played Judas in Jesus uh, oh, Christ and yeah. JC Soups. That's what we called it. And <laughs> that was that was great. That was interesting. But at that point in time, I still had only just really been on the stage. And then towards the end of undergrad, I started songwriting. And so by the time, you know, like I reached my early 20s, I thought I was going to go back to New York and I don't know, be a recording artist or, or something like I, I think that's what I really thought I wanted. But when I reflect on it, I think it's what everybody's expectations were of me. Of course, everybody yeah. thought, oh, well, you have all of this talent or these gifts or, you know, you know how to really be uh, like a great performer in front of an audience. You can hold them in your hand. And so I thought that's what I wanted. But then I ended up having an unplanned pregnancy. And I had a child and all of what I thought were going to be my plans were no longer really things that I wanted, mainly because, well, one benefits and like health and all that stuff. But, you know, I didn't ever really want to choose between my child, the extension of me versus showbiz. And so that's when I found like Lotsie Doe. And that's when I you know, started like really writing about things in my life. And at that time, it was a lot about like love and heartbreak and whatever, all the things, all the emotions. And, but at the same time, parallel to that, I was also starting to be on the other side of things. So I was working at a school where I developed a program and a department for adult immigrants. It's called Carlos Osario International Public Charter School. And there I was the founding program director of arts integration and culture. And that's when I really learned the other side. And I really have such a love for people who do this all the time, like produce, right? Because I never had seen myself as any sort of producer or director or anything. I was like, no, that's not who I am. But I think I actually am better on that side (laughs) sometimes because I know what it's like to be the actor. I know what it's like to be the performer. And I know a lot of times there are a lot of directors out there who are doing it because they couldn't make it. And I don't think that was the case for me. It was more of like, I was put in a very interesting situation and I made the best of it. And then at that point, I just grew to really love that side of just being on the logistics and the planning and the envisioning. And I tapped into something I never thought I would, which was really to, you know, what humans have. It's the only creature on earth that can think about something and envision it and then make it happen. And I thought, wow, we have this magical gift that like no other creature on earth has. Why isn't everybody using this? And I think that the performing arts, the visual arts, literary arts, all of those things really bring all of the worlds together. And it's just something really special. So I think that's like, sort of my journey and then now I'm sitting now I'm like at that point in my career where I'm like sitting on a lot of boards and like these national boards and you know like my alma mater came back to me this week and I got elected to sit on the singing Hoosiers board and I'm a voting board and I was like oh my god singing Hoosiers they were kind of racist <laughs> I get to now like I'm here <laughs> yes <laughs> like, I'm like this is amazing so you know like all of this equity stuff is like this hot topic, but things that we've 
we've felt, experienced, and been talking about since day one. So now I'm at this, you know, these intersections, and I, I just have a lot going on in my life, and I'm running an arts organization. So I'm like, I feel like I'm in now like a new chapter of my life, where I'm bringing all the things that I learned in the first, I will state my age, I don't care, 36 years of my life including single parenting and single motherhood and all of those things, like really every part of, of my life. And now I'm putting it to use in a way where I'm leading the charge and forging ahead and I'm doing some badass shit, you know, you and I'm like, and I'm cool with that. So I hope that answered that question. No, that totally did. I mean, that no, that was all the detail that we're looking for. Like, it's so nice to see it. There's a lot of there that I didn't know, you know, that, you know, we've known each other for a long time and I, I haven't heard, you know, maybe a quarter of those things, which is great. So you kind of touched on the next question, which is on a scale of one to producer now, where do you sit? And you kind of explained why a little bit, but this is a question I ask everybody because their answers have been very interesting in terms of when they start self-defining. So on that scale, where, where do you think you sit and why or why not based on what you just described? So I know when you had like kind of sent me the, these questions, I was like, I'm going to kind of look at them, but I'm not going to peruse. I'm not going to think too much because sure, like sure. I said, in the very beginning, I love to call in the ancestors. They do all the work for me. They carry me. And, you know, I would say I'm definitely a producer and I, that can mean a lot of things. Of course. Yeah. That's also <laughs> I, why I asked this question. <laughs> yeah. Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's any question can be heavy if you want it to be right. Mm -hmm. You can, and I'm a Virgo, you're a Virgo. We overthink, <laughs> we overanalyze oh, it's yes. just the nature of our being. I hate labels. So that that's one answer. But I do, I do. And so I don't like to be pigeonholed. I guess that's the whole of course, point. Right? Yeah. I like to be more fluid. Why? I think I am one because of the things that I have produced, because the things I have envisioned, because of the things I've directed, you know, like all of those typical check, 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 check kind mm -hmm. of deals. I don't think there's, I don't have a why not. I mean, I think why, why do people not view producing to be much larger than it is, it mm -hmm. tends to get that label of like, oh, well, it's for like for movies or it's for theater or it's for like these shows, but you can be a producer in so many other aspects. So I just, I feel like I'm not even in the why not. I totally am. And I think really? maybe people should be questioning why don't they think that they're a producer? Why do they pigeonhole themselves into doing things? I love that. And it, uh, like any industry, there is almost like a stereotype, right? So like, I feel like for producers, be, I mean, there is no definition of what a one producer is, but it's like, when people think of producers, they think of those like kind of fat cat kind of people who just like have a lot of money and they put money behind things because they can. Yeah. And they just like make it rain because that's what they do. And they pay for stuff like cats and like, you know, that's really what people think producers are. It's just, it's not true. Producers, you know, it basically what I said is a producer is somebody who, who has the ability to care about multiple people at once and to be able to fill the need of many people at the same time and also answer and feel and process issues and problems. So to simplify, like the sorority mom, essentially, is like what the producer is, because you really are. You take care of everything, especially in the arts, whether where sometimes, 
And by sometimes like 95% of the time, there is no HR, like you are the HR too. So there's that, but it's always interesting to hear people's answers because it's, there's no university to go be a producer. There's no one program that everybody looks to for this field. And so it's awesome to hear everybody's own definition of how they found themselves to be under that umbrella and, um, and it changes. So yeah, I think that even what you just said, like the, the standardized stereotypical definition of like some mm-hmm. fat person giving a bunch of writing a bunch of fat checks, <laughs> right? <laughs> really, right. But that's also due to white supremacy, right? right? So it's like in thinking of what has been ingrained in us as a society of oh, a backing of something or support always is equivalent to finance, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Right. Uh, there are so many other ways, just as you just said it, that it can be done. But I think that also gives it a different spin on things when we really gravitate towards, towards redefining what things mean to us as people of color, people who have been marginalized, people who, you know, are in those other parts that people aren't bringing to the table always. I think that's where we have that power and we mm-hmm. can turn things around to redefining it for what it means for us in our communities versus trying to assimilate and fit into those boxes of what has already been defined by people who didn't create those spaces for us. Mm-hmm. For sure. Hi, my name is Sam Post, owner of Phenomwell CBD store and phenomwellcbd.com. That's like phenomenal, phenomwellcbd.com. Tune in where we talk with experts about how the amazing hemp plant can make a difference for people's health and well-being from the Press Play Podcast Network. I just want to run away with you. I'm just so Tara Trinity, and you're listening to Producing While Asian. So tell me, like, lean a little bit more into that and talk talk to us about, in your work now, how you're kind of contributing to the conversation of battling white supremacy, but also the idea of representation matters in, in our field. Because, you know, I feel like in any place, whether you're sitting on a board or you're producing a show, it's trying to create that equity in addition to seeking it. But, like, creating that equity is, is a very very specific skill to have. So how, how is that happening in your world and in your work? You know, talk to us about that. So I, I mean, this is, oof. all right. <laughs> I will start with, with my specific job right now. So I'm the executive director of Public Art Reston and I am coming in <laughs> into an organization <laughs> that like, And I'm like really excited, right? Because the last organization I was at, let me start there. The last organization I was at, and this might go into another question. Uh, (laughs) All good, all good. (laughs) So we will loop back into that. But the last organization I was at, 
even though it was doing really great stuff and the mission really speaks to people, it was white saviors and, and white supremacy all over the place. And I was not in a position where my opinion was valued. I was not in a position where when I spoke up, I was even valued. I was not in a position where I was sitting at the table all the time. I would bring a fucking bench, but sometimes they would just be <laughs> like, and you don't know about the next meeting. You know, so like it was right. metaphorically speaking, it was just, that's the way it was. So I feel like the difference between that organization and now what I'm leading is that I am making those decisions. And I am the person that is like bringing in, like I'm literally working on right now. I'm in my first month. I started April 26. <laughs> so I'm in my first really? month <laughs> and finishing out strong. And I'm working on our equity, accessibility, and belonging statement, because those things are really, really important to me. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in, and this goes to like that specific skill that we talk about when folks are trying to broaden others, other people's lenses or bringing other people in, is that diversity, I think I've seen this in a lot of places, is, is not justice. It needs to have intention. And I talk about this all the time. I'm actually going to be, I'm actually going to be a keynote for something this summer. And I think that was like the title I gave it. I was like diversity with intention. I guess it was Love just like, place. people are always like, oh, well, we're diverse. And in like, what are, way? Just are you though? Like, are you? Yeah. <laughs> like You could have a room and this is like, sorry if I'm throwing lots of shade to my last word, okay. but like you could have a room full of very colorful folks, right? And mm -hmm. it's diverse when you're talking ethnicities and race on the board, but does that mean that it's diverse in, in background, in socioeconomic background, right. in you know your education background, in where you sit in other places? Like, you know, like diversity is so large. And so for me, you could have black, white, brown everybody sitting at the table but if all those people are asleep and if all those people are you know drank the tea and if all those people believe in capitalism with white supremacy and they are indoctrinated then what good does that do it right. doesn't do any you know so it's like that's kind of what i'm doing now and so i'm trying to be very intentional about everything i'm not i am not giving into white supremacy urgency that is one thing that i have am really working on with decolonizing my mindset i got a decolonizing mindset coach yes <laughs> I was okay, like, that's cool i was like wow. this is what i need i started with her in march and i'm part of like this i got like my entrepreneurial sisters of color and it's really great to be surrounded by like-minded people who are also fighting the colonization that's ingrained and the supremacy that's ingrained and realizing not all, everything is bad and not everything's good either. You can't go from one extreme to the other either. So it's like, I'm really just trying to hone into those things. And then at the same time, I'm also looking at my job in a way that this pays the bills. I can do some good in the world. I can make art more accessible. I can bring people to the table. I can uplift people. But at the same time, I need my passion projects. So I have like, you know, something that I'm working on with a podcast for Native Washingtonians with my friend Eleni. I have another project that's like turning into a business. 
with my co-founder, Ami Sherson. She works at Americans for the Arts and we're, you know, working on elevating artists who are mixed race and artists who are transracial adoptees. So like, those are things for me that it's like, I'm really passionate about those. And so if I do get kind of like bogged down with other things, I feel like I still have something that speaks to me and speaks to my soul. And not like it's like this compartmentalization thing all the time, but it's more of like, I think we're just so used to, oh, well, this is your job and this is your life and you have to be married to it and it has to be everything. It has to fill in everything. But it's just like a relationship. You can't expect your partner to fulfill everything that you need because that's not fair. So you have to have your friends. You have to have your community. You have to have your things that you do on your own, you know, ways that you give yourself energy. So I feel like I'm transferring a lot of those skills that I've used in my personal life now into my business life and then vice versa. So I don't know where I went with that, but hopefully. I heard a lot. Yeah, you did. (laughs) You, you, You gave us a lot there. I mean, it's really great to hear kind of the specificity of what you're doing in your own career to, to just contribute to the conversation, to contribute to the effort, because there's a lot of people that, you know, fall into being performative where when you, when you say like, so what, what are you or your organization doing? And they're like, oh yeah, we're like posting a bunch of things about, you know, white supremacy. And they're like, cool. So then what? And so it's nice to hear big detail, like what you're doing both in your professional and your passion part of your life, which is really exciting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to all of these things from you. So how did the podcast come to be? Well, let's just say gentrification has a lot to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> just like the cicadas. Just, <laughs> justice for the cicadas in Northwest DC. Justice. Hashtag <laughs> justice for cicadas. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have me crying. I, I, I'm going to remember that one. So it came about because... At my last job, I thought it was really important for, so my last job, I think I mentioned this, but it's, it was adult immigrants that I was working with. Mm -hmm. And so with adult immigrants here in DC, you know, people tend to get, I don't know, people don't bring in all the communities together, right? Because we all talk about like black and brown communities stronger together, but then people don't do anything, right? Like you're saying it's like performative allyship or just Mm -hmm. saying stuff, just saying stuff doesn't mean anything. Right. Like you learn this in theater. Like you can't just like plan forever. Like you have to actually do right. You have to Mm -hmm. actually get into the nitty gritty. And so I thought to myself, you know what? We have a lot of classes where you have a mix of immigrant students and then native Washingtonians who are African-American. And so they tend to be in more of the workforce program. So like culinary arts or nurse aid or computer support specialists. Those were tech those were really the classes that they were in because any Washingtonian, any person who lives in DC can go to that school, even though it's specifically kind of geared to immigrants, but anybody can pick up a certification. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of different people because I love to talk to everybody. So I'm hearing from a lot of folks like, Hey, you know, this person and this person aren't getting along or like, you know, these communities are clashing and I was like, you know, that's maybe, maybe it's due to people not understanding each other. Maybe it's like a language barrier thing. 
And this is years ago, I was thinking of these things. But then as I started digging deeper and as I started having more conversations with African-American Native Washingtonians, I thought to myself, and when I say Native Washingtonians, I'm not talking about like Native American. I'm talking about people who were born and raised in Washington, D.C., right? Mm -hmm. So that just asterisk. (laughs) So when I was talking to staff members or faculty members who fall under that category of Native Washingtonians, they were like, well, people don't, they don't understand each other because they, they really just don't understand like the history. And when I would speak to immigrant students, they felt prejudice from the the African-American community. When I spoke to African-American community, they felt like things were being taken away from them. And I was like, huh, well, that's not true. Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But nobody's talking about it and nobody's getting it together. And so, you know, this past school year, I said, I would love to focus for Black History Month, I would love to focus on DC history. If our immigrant students can start learning about DC history, maybe they will understand why African African American communities are struggling, why there is gentrification, you know, like just kind of high level universal topics. And so I spoke with a coworker, Eleni, and she and I, and she's a native Washingtonian and she's a mom too. And our sons happen to go to school together. And then I'm a mother to a native Washingtonian. So it's like, huh, this is, this is kind of cool. Like, and, and whatever. And she reached out to the co-authors of Chocolate City. It's a, it's a book. And I learned through that, like, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this on our podcast, but there, there were no real history books about DC history, True. which is yeah. crazy. Right. So they got together and they had taught this course at UDC and they and they wrote the book together. So it's like this big fat book. It's insane. <laughs> and and I invited them to come speak at the school. So they came to speak at the school. And then from there, I ended up having like interviews with staff and faculty who are native Washingtonians. And what was coming out of that was like really dope history, historical references, Mount Pleasant riots, you know, it, how people love Anacostia, gentrification. Like one of the people at my job or my old job, she used to live where Wonderland is. Oh, like, wow. And then they bought it and they made it into that. Yeah. And she's like, I, I wish I could, you know, go back to my home and see like my childhood room that I grew up in, but it's now Wonderland. And I was like, it's wild when you think about so i've gotten drunk in your childhood bedroom cool exactly (laughs) like i think i even performed there one time with a band like like, had no idea and that that's somebody's things like that right like history like that Mm -hmm. yes and those are these untold stories you know it's we talk so much about the big stuff but we don't go into the little things and those are really what resonate with people. So that's kind of how it was born. And so now we're, you know, we're doing our lineup for the first two seasons and I'm just really excited about it. And, yeah. and also like raising a child who has a very interesting concept of what a state is, is mm-hmm. really kind of funny because, <laughs> <laughs> because he learns how the government works here in DC but that's like not the way I learned how government works because right. I, I'm, I'm from Jersey. So, 
as I talked to my friend Eleni, she said she also had the same kind of issues because she's a native Washingtonian. And she said she didn't really learn the concept of counties and like things like that until she was at UVA. And I was like, wait, what? Like, this is right, all right. new to me. So just learning a lot through raising a native Washingtonian too. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of like the specific, especially now in like this moment of time, in this moment in history that's so specific for our community, with Asian hate and the fanning of the COVID-19 myth from the last administration. It's interesting because DC does have a very vibrant AAPI community. I mean, speaking just about the Filipino community, it's huge, like in that part of this, the country and like in the Maryland, Virginia, DC place. And so, you know, and they're all really excited to be involved, but you don't hear about them unless you know about them, which is also kind of crazy. Uh, outside of like, oh, I know where the Philippine embassy is, you know, and that's like super basic. Like, a lot, you know, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, that's that embassy on Massachusetts Avenue. You're like, yeah, they're all. Wait, on I don't. Avenue. I don't. Okay. Oh, wait, I think I know where it is because I passed it the other day, and yeah. I was like, oh, that's where it is. I saw the flag. <laughs> right, it's right at the circle with um across yeah. from Australia, just like in real life. Uh, so, <laughs> but that's so how I guess in in all of your equity efforts and especially with the podcast that's coming up and stuff like that, like, you know, how are you hoping that it'll all kind of help in our, our struggle? I hate to say that word, but like the struggle and the activism that we're part of right now, um, because that's why this podcast came to life because, you know, I need to, I found it important to show non-Asian people that we're here. We are well accomplished. We know what we're doing and we're not here giving you COVID. Okay. So like, you know, talk, talk to us about how your work will inform parts of our, our fight too. So, you know, I think somewhere where I come from a lot is, and I think this is just in general, and you know me very yeah. well, but I, I talk about things that people don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I bring that's up great. topics. I appreciate right. it. And I, that's why you're I here. Love, <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I love to, it's it's not like a challenge thing, but it's more of like, okay, I think you missed this whole side and maybe I should like make you aware. And so right now I'm actually working on some content and doing some other things with the Institute for Anti-Racist Education, which is nice. so much fun. And so the first time I ever met the, the CEO and founder, her name is Ashley. The first time I met her, we talked a lot about this, like exact thing. And I told her the issue that I have with all of these racial talks right now is that it's so binary. Yeah. <laughs> we live in a very binary world. I grew up in a very binary world. I grew up evangelical. Don't know hmm. if you knew that, but I think you no. did. <laughs> I think I did yeah. know that, but I kind of like blocked it out. I was like, no. That oh yeah, I grew up Spanish Pentecostal. So <laughs> like <laughs> I went to church six Full days sweet. a week. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a binary in itself. Yeah. White supremacy is a binary, you know, good and bad, or good and evil, heaven and hell, 
or, or right and wrong late and on time. Like there's no like fluidity, male, female, like Mm -hmm. everything is so binary. And then when we talk about race, that continues. And here in the United States, it's always black and white. So, you know, I don't know if lately I, and it's great that the black community has really been elevating, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let me mark that yesterday was the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death. Like, I mean, like it hit me in my body yesterday, you know, like, it's just Mm -hmm. like, there's a lot going on and a lot is being elevated and just like, it's like excavation from like centuries of oppression. But still, I think sometimes the point is being missed. So when I read these articles, it's always like, oh, as a black woman or a black man, you know, this is how white people are. And I'm like, okay. And then I read the whole article and I'm like, I felt like I was that person. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. but not ever am I really seeing me represented, right? It's it's always like, and then like even sometimes in spaces BIPOC or POC and when it's being used, sometimes people are specifically only gearing that to black communities or African-American communities. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'm just going to use global majority because for me, it's about empowerment. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's about like, our struggles are not visible. We know this, the Asian hate that's happening. Who's doing it? You know, like for me, it's like, there's, there's a lot to talk about. You know, I, I'm personally triggered if I go to the Safeway down the street, because I have, you know, people saying really prejudiced things to me, calling me, you know, Chinese person or Spanish person because they don't know what the heck I am because I'm mixed, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't know, they, they can't put me in a right. box. And this is happening from people of color. I had a boss at my last job who was severely oppressive to me. She was also a person of color, you know? And so yeah. for me, I'm like, but then if I say anything, well, Asian people are successful. Well, Asian well, people are minority. Jeez. Well, yeah, the model minority myth mm-hmm. is just like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so now my struggles are completely invisible because I happen to be the good minority, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've been trying to talk about this a lot. And specifically, also, there's so much colorism, too, oh, that yeah. happens in mm-hmm. the AAPI community, like so much. So much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, we don't yeah. talk about that either. There's a lot of internalized racism. There's a lot of internalized prejudices. I deal with interfamilial things sometimes since childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, I'm trying to pick and choose what I feel like at that moment or within that platform. How can I elevate the awareness of AAPI issues, whether they're challenges, their struggles, it's celebration, it's joy you know, trying to do that because I feel like we are so forgotten in this binary world, in this Mm -hmm. binary country of always talking about black and white, where we should be talking about, let's just dismantle white crazy supremacy. And we all need to form coalitions with each other because although my struggle, your struggle might be different from another person's struggle who maybe is darker complected or is a black person, It doesn't mean that we should be in competition to like who has the bigger struggle because that's white supremacy. (laughs) 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 It's funny how people don't like see that, you know, like there's a lot of people who are so blind to that and they just think like it's just natural to 
or not natural, but that it's okay to be a person of color and to judge another person of color based on their beliefs that are mostly ill-informed because it comes from the white supremacist place. And so it's unfortunate, just like how pervasive that is and how many people fall into that trap that the colonizers have set for us. And, uh, you know, that we're always falling into that mousetrap all the time. And so I, I've, I don't struggle with it, but it's, it's definitely something that weighs on me a lot. The like, just even that one piece of like, how can we all be better about building those bridges and find and, and fixing the misinformation between us, you know, so that we can, like you said, form an actual coalition of information that's the same across the board to be like, okay, so now as people of color, as BIPOC, as, you know, all of that good stuff, we can now move forward and say, all right, white supremacy, like your day's done. Like we we've taken, like, we've all talked to each other. We compared notes, like we know what's going on. Okay. And like come in there and like dismantle the whole thing. But until we can do that, I think that's where we're kind of at right now is like, as it is kind of upsetting to, read the stories of what has been happening to people in our community and knowing that a good portion of them were committed by people of color. And it's like heartbreaking because you're like, wow. So are we not, are we, are we not going to the right source? Right. Exactly. What you said earlier, like who's committing it. And it's like, you know, so there's a deeper, deeper problem now besides the obvious, which is white supremacy. The deeper, deeper problem is now we need to talk to each other and like take a knee and like, really have a discussion about how can we support each other's collective oppression to like get out of this hole, you know? So that's a great way to put it. Great. Like collective oppression, because Mm -hmm. that in turn, you know, is white supremacy and pitting communities of color against each other. But it's like, but because we're not talking about it, you know, then what's going to happen is going to continue, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, this world. <laughs> so. Hey, it's Tito, host of the Premier Fantasy Podcast. Get all the news and analysis you need to dominate your fantasy league. I've been doing this as long as anybody in the business. I can help give you the edge. The R&R Podcast going to be rocking and rolling with you because football season is underway. College, Ohio State, the Power Fives, the Mac, the Browns. Michael Regai, are you ready to rock and roll with some football? Yeah, I've been ready. This is our time of year. This is what R&R is all about. We're going to be with you every week. And he just said it, Browns, NFL, Ohio State-centric. So you got to stay with us all fall and winter long here on R&R. That's right, the Red Eye and Rhoda podcast coming to you here on the Press Play Podcast Network. Subscribe now and don't miss a show. And I still miss you Cause I had always, always loved you And there is no way to temper my heart the only time I can't see you, my eyes are smart. And I still miss you. Cause I had always, always loved you. And now I have my tears and blurry sight, sleeping in the one last 
church we left that night. I'm Tara Trinity, and you're listening to Producing While Asian. We have to we we have to get back on the stage soon though, because I know there's like a lot of people feel the same way. We have this like pent up performance energy where like we just need to go and do stuff. And I feel like everybody's got a lot of really good rage songs right now that they have to play. <laughs> oh, like those, you know, the <laughs> Linda Lindas? Yeah, yeah. The the uh, band at the LA Public Library. I was loving. Yeah, that. they did that little concert with that song, and now they have a record deal. Like you're a racist, sexist. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that video like twelve times. <laughs> it's so like, like it speaks to us as much as Olivia Rodriguez's album about like sad. <laughs> but her her seventeen year old rage is. <laughs> It's a whole new subset of, uh, like, if Taylor Swift was angry, you'd have Olivia Rodriguez. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so now we have a lot of people that listen to the show that are, you know, they could be either in the middle of of working their way through a producing career or, you know, an arts arts management career, or they're thinking about it, or they're not completely not part of it, and they're like, well, how do I support people within the field so that's almost like a three-pronged question but starting with the people who are trying to work their way through but also maybe trying to start in this space you know what are a few and I've said this before in other episodes like what is your fruit basket of advice just because you can't just give one piece of advice that's really lame but like you know what is your like apple banana and orange that you're going to give to this person of advice of like you know in my case it might be like a papaya mango yeah papaya mango and you know <laughs> avocado uh, guava <laughs> yeah guava pineapple <laughs> so tell give us a little bit of that like if someone were to come to you and be like hey I really loved your episode I want to push forward, you know, with my activism, with my producing and all that stuff, you know, kind of what tidbits would you give them based on your experience so far? I think a couple of things that I, that worked for me, but I guess I never really reflected on it until mm-hmm. now is <laughs> Thanks, one, ancestors. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing is like, really like, why Get, getting to know the why in, in 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 what you're doing this for a lot of times i think most of us especially those of us who are in the arts world or artistry we've been trained or developed or our skills in some way shape or form and then it just seems natural to try to do something because you want to but not always knowing why and mm-hmm. what speaks to you Once I think someone has a better understanding of that why, they're going to be way better at being able to envision and to produce and to do. Because otherwise, it's just going to be something that is empty, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then kind of going along with that is to speak your truth. And I say this a lot now because I think I used to say it differently <laughs> 10 years ago <laughs> oh yeah I mean things so unfiltered. yeah but like yeah. I've always been like super unfiltered but now it's more of and I actually gave this advice in a panel I spoke at last week which is really like you know knowing who you are but what tends to happen is that when 
and this all goes back to capitalism <laughs> and <laughs> colonialism is we are so we are we are kind of you know like as we're raised here in this society and i'm not saying that all types of capitalism are bad I'm, don't get me in the all or nothing thing either right but i think the way that we're raised in this society is is all about quantity and and I think a lot of times when people think that they're like, oh, okay, so yeah, I get it, quality over quantity. And I'm like, no, I don't think you actually get it. But yes, that is what it is. It's quality or quality over quantity. But we think about this when we think of like, if you're on your social media and how many followers are you getting? I need to get up to 10,000 followers because then I'll get that little like blue thing or the whatever. Yeah, the, the <laughs> chat. And people pay for that, and it's usually yeah. bought. Also, there are people that only have like a thousand followers, and they have the blue thingy. So you don't have to have ten k to be very. Yeah, I don't <laughs> actually true. I don't get that blue thing, yeah, but whatever. Same. But I think a lot of times, you know, or you're you're YouTube, and you want to get X amount of followers, and I think goals like that are really great. But at the same time, what tends to happen is then your product gets watered down. And what you're doing is you're trying to talk to a vast majority of people because you think you know what all these people want. And then you're trying to be as vague as possible with your, you know, with your content or with, you know, whatever you're producing or you're saying, oh, it's going to speak to this large audience. But I'm so against that now. And I'm like, then that's where the true meaning for me of quality over quantity goes. Because if you speak your truth, and you start talking about things that really hit you and really mean things to you, guess what? There's other people that you won't speak to. It might not be 10, 20, 30,000, but hey, it actually might, you know? And then you start finding a real core amount of followers that really believe in the work that you're doing because, because you are speaking so deeply from the soul, it connects to them. And I've been finding this out a lot in the last couple of years, but specifically like since the pandemic, when I started doing the mixed race stuff with Mixed mm -hmm. Collective, I was like, oh, there's probably not that many out there who, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, like I remember right? when I sent out my first newsletter not that long ago, I got so many emails from people. Like one was like, I thought all these uncomfortable feelings I had, I had to live with. I was the first time I read, I'm literally at work crying my eyes out. And I was like, but it was because we didn't try to dumb it down, to water it down, to make it palatable for certain yes. audiences. And I feel like that's what people do all the time, especially oh, yeah. people who are trying to produce because they're always thinking, like with capitalism, they're always thinking about yeah. money, 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 well, quantity, or yeah. Right. Yeah. Or how many versus like, who are you speaking to? Because if you're speaking your own shit, then it's going to get to somebody else. So I hope that lands with someone um, who's speaking. And so look, it might land with one person who listens to this, but that's fine. Exactly. But it's better than zero. You know, like one person <laughs> will have heard it. And, you know, and, and that's why I'm so inspired to keep talking to everybody because, you know, I've listened and then you have too, like, we've listened to many podcasts and we've seen many shows. We worked with so many people and like you, you know, you want to hear something that might inspire you or push you to do something. And, and so it's important to have these conversations. So like you said, like all it takes is one, like one person that has heard you and is like, Oh, okay. Well, I, now I, I feel inspired to move forward and help make some change in my community. 
and and it goes from there because it's like yeah so i may have 1400 followers on instagram sure but like of those 1400 how many do they know how many do those those people know and like and so on and whatnot so like your your message could sail along the the interwebs to whoever might need to hear it because there's always you know people sharing stuff so yeah you're absolutely right it's just taking the time to to put your stuff out there genuinely and not through the filter of someone who is trying to, well, let me rephrase that through a filter because you need to make it look different for someone. If that makes sense. Like, you know, cause we're, cause we're, we're busy being like, well, how do I wordsmith this so that more people understand it as opposed to how do I wordsmith how I feel and put that out there and whoever like feels it's going to come to it. Um, So it's all that good stuff, but so how can people find you, Tara? Like, where can they find you? How can they see your work? Like what, how can they, you know, become work contacts with you or whichever? Honestly, you can email me. Like, I don't even care. And I'm like, yeah, you totally can email me. Am I supposed to just state my email? Yeah, you can just say it, yeah. Okay, so my my personal email that I check like twice or three times a day. I hope you don't get stalkers from this. <laughs> oh, I don't care. Like, if you really want to stalk me, <laughs> like, good luck. But <laughs> it's Tara Trinity and then the number two at gmail.com. So that's my personal email. And the thing is, I have like six emails because I have like so many different of course. contact hosts and All stuff. All the things. And then, mm-hmm. and following me on Instagram is great too because I'm a visual person so I love to put like what I'm into lately what I'm I'm a part of what panels I'm speaking on whatever my new content mm-hmm. is for any of my things so that's Tara underscore and then it's Trinity so I'm gonna spell it out it's T-A-R-A underscore T-R-I-N-I-T-Y Y Y Y Y that's five wise. I know I'm a, I'm a lot. And then LinkedIn, <laughs> if you're on LinkedIn. So I love when people reach out to me personally and have something fun to say, or, you know, want to get together on a virtual chat. Like if you're looking for anything or you want to be pointed in the right direction, or you want to be involved in any, anything that I'm doing, like, cool. Contact me. Sweet. I'm so not that person that's like, oh, you can get in touch with my executive. Heck no. <laughs> like, that's just weird. Only my Snapchat, only. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I have a Snapchat and it's only for my two sisters because they're Gen Z. And so like they do, they do the Snapchat. So I got on there for them and like exclusively for them. And I noticed when I signed up, of course, it tells all of your friends that you're on Snapchat. So all these people start requesting to follow me. And like, I've denied all of them. And I'm sure all of them are like, why the hell is Don Mike not accepting my Snapchat friendship? And I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to say here and now on the record, I'm so sorry. Snapchat is for my sisters. And that's it. I'm only following them. I don't post anything. It's really more so, so that if they're in trouble, I know where else to find their information. <laughs> I'm just trying to be that, you know, big brother, but. Um, I love, well, I, I love Snapchat, but I got it originally, like for the yeah, when it was new. purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, secret <laughs> messages that disappear. <laughs> 
Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, what is this Snapchat? I do not want to see your whole life story. It's like so. an Instagram. It's like a Snapstagram. It's all, oh. all the same. But thank you again so, so very much for being a guest. And, you know, come back anytime when there's something you want to talk about or promote or whichever. If we want to keep talking about white supremacy, I'm all game for that. <laughs> then, uh, you know, you're welcome here whenever, whenever you have time because we'd love to have you back. And so it's so good to have you and to hear your story and to, to talk with you more. So I hope you'll come back. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it today. And I wish you so much success with this podcast. I think it's fantastic. I think it's brilliant. I love that. I, I just love the title, Producing While Asian. I think it's so great. And it just speaks to a lot of people. So I'm. thank you for having me. Awesome. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Producing While Asian podcast. Our theme song was created by Luckstock. We are produced by Press Play Podcast, and the show is edited by Michael Santos Sandoval. If you have a moment, please leave a review and a rating, and be sure to send us any topic ideas you have to producingwhileasian at gmail.com. To follow us, stay updated, and read our blog, visit www.producingwhileasian.com. We hope you join us again soon.